If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator, a weekly show for marketing executives who need to accelerate customer-centric thinking and digital maturity. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe of Ambition Data. This show features innovative guests who share quick wins on how to improve your bottom line while creating happier, more valuable customers. Ready to accelerate? Let's go! Welcome, everyone. Today's show is about how to get your message through. Anyone who has ever tried to manage change within an organization certainly knows the importance of communication. And with data, it's even more challenging. So I've actually even heard one CAO say that the two most important positions on her team were product manager, which she considered a factory foreman, and a data storyteller. So to help me discuss this very important topic is Leah Pika. Leah is a data storytelling expert, someone who I think you will just absolutely enjoy hearing. And she's also the founder of leahpika.com and host of the fabulous Present Beyond Measure podcast. So Leah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit more about your background and you know, how did you end up in this concept of data storytelling? It's fairly new. Yes. You know, it's funny, the concept of storytelling is as old as time itself, but bringing those elements into how we look at data is what I think makes this field such a hot topic and so exciting to be at the forefront of. So um, in terms of my background, I spent 12 years as a digital marketer, an SEO, an SEM and finally landed in an analytics management position where I created analytics programs and implemented them for several companies like Victoria's Secret, Prudential, and Bath and Body Works. And the most interesting thing would happen, I found that on top of getting to roll around in heaps of data all day, I would be asked to walk into a room full of very important looking people and sometimes intimidating, and I'd be asked to present my findings and make them care about what I was doing all day. And what I would watch instead is I would watch them doze off or check their email or even play games on their phone. I definitely caught it. And by the end of that meeting, I was getting so frustrated that the conversation wasn't really much of a dialogue and that weeks or months later after that meeting, nothing would happen. No one would care about my work. No one was taking action on my insights. And I just didn't understand where I was going wrong. So one day I accidentally discovered neuroscience-based presentation and data visualization principles. And it was like a eureka moment that blew my whole mind open. And I decided to go way deep on these subjects because I realized that I was making every mistake in these books because simply because no one had taught me how to present data to the brains of my audience. You know, there are so many different personality types and preferences 
but the way that our brain interprets and absorbs information is actually pretty consistent. This is why, you know, when we look at our stakeholders, we may think that they're very dry, but they're really going home and watching Game of Thrones. Everyone loves a great story. So I really couldn't believe that I wasn't empowered with these tools. And I was also finding that everyone else in my field was not empowered with these tools. So I remember I was at an eMetrics conference probably about 10 years ago now, and I vowed that one day I would empower others in my field with the tools and the mindsets they needed to do four things, to inform decisions, inspire action, create memorable moments, and create indispensability for themselves the way I had. Because when I started using these principles, I got promoted I survived layoffs. I got approvals to hire more teams. It was a really immediate impact and it really allowed me to create a personal brand for myself in my company that led to this path. So through a series of very fortunate events like speaking invitations and coaching requests, I decided to create a training, speaking, consulting, and podcasting business that allows me today to teach thousands of digital practitioners at whatever stage they are in their career and empower them with all of the tools that I wish I'd known and had when I started out. So it's been an amazing ride so oh, far, Allison. Imagine, what a great story. What a great way to kick off with a great story. And you know, that's why I'm here. <laughs> normally in these, uh, you know, in, in my interviews, I usually start off with something like, why should I care? But I think in this case, we all know that communication is really important and data storytelling is particularly difficult. So could you begin by telling us a little bit about some of the common mistakes that you see newbies making, the ones that you alluded to just a few minutes ago when you said you were making every mistake in the book? <laughs> Absolutely. So we'll get to like the visual aspect of presentations in a moment, because that's what we think of when we first think of a bad presentation. But that's only a bad presentation deck, necessarily. I think that the first misstep that we make, and again, all of this is simply a result of not being equipped with the information we need when we start out. So there's no judgment <laughs> at whatsoever, but it's not thinking about what we're presenting as a story. So one of the things that I teach are thinking about what are the elements that make a great story? They're a strong protagonist. They're an interesting antagonist or obstacles. Um, there's maybe a guide. There are surprising twists and turns, and there's a really satisfying resolution. And what I'm finding is that our presentations, whether it has data or it's a request or a proposal of a new idea, we're not incorporating those elements that keep an audience in rapt attention while you're speaking. And that is your number one goal when you go in there and try to present is you are trying to maintain their attention and you're trying to be memorable enough to make them want to act once they walk out of that room. So I try to teach some of the ways that we can incorporate those storytelling elements. So in thinking, I use Star Wars mm -hmm. as an example because it's the best. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I'll, I'll say you have an epic battle between Luke and Darth Vader. And, you know, people think of, you know, Luke as 
themselves. I'm the hero. I'm going in there. I'm the hero. And the surprising thing is you're not actually the hero. The audience is the hero. You are trying to help the audience win a battle with Darth Vader. And what Darth represents are the challenges and obstacles that your data is showing about how your customers are interacting with your brand. So you and then people say, well, well, what does that make me? And what you are is Yoda. You are actually the guide and the sensei for Luke, your audience, to help overcome these obstacles. Because when you are going in there from a framework of, I'm going to make my audience win, you can't imagine how much more productive that is. So even some of those data storytelling elements are crucial. And I'd love to take you through kind of five steps that I have and in terms of telling a story behind your data that for me really consistently delivers engaging and actionable I, results. I May I share that? Those five steps, but I also want to circle back to what you said just a second ago. If you're to be successful, you you come in with this idea about that you're going to help your audience win, you've got the storytelling mindset. But when new people try to communicate data, is it that they come in with the sense that they are the hero? Well, that's just it. If they're coming in with a sense of story at all, and what I'm saying is a lot of us aren't doing that. A lot of us are just going at the data as a sort of shopping cart, and we're dumping every possible thing that we can think of in there running it through the cashier and hoping that as they scan each item, one of these things is going to catch their attention. And there's a lot to that communication piece as well in terms of assessing what your audience actually needs. And there's a whole process behind that um, that I think would really serve anyone to look at their audience from a needs perspective. So it's, it's not coming in with a story. It's coming in with a big shopping bag full of random items and just kind of spreading them all over yeah, the table. Yeah. I always like how Avinash calls that data puke. It, it's fairly graphic <laughs> and awfully gross, but it is actually that in practice too. <laughs> and sometimes you need something that striking to be, to really send a message home, right, you know? Right. Okay. Let's move on to your five steps you said, or, or five methodologies. Five. Yes. So it's, it's five, five questions five. to take your audience through that, provide a lot of what great data storytelling or or storytelling in general does. So the first thing, the first question is what happened? And you want to relay this in terms of an observation, something that feels impartial and objective. You're not too quick to overlay your judgment and your own assessment on top of it because you want to build trust and credibility. So that's going to be the first thing is stating what you saw that happened. But then our job as analysts for me is really to go deeper and say, why do we think it happened? And this is where the subjectivity and the unique lens of each of our experiences is really important. And you don't have to be right because being right or wrong is also pretty subjective in our field, but at least using our experience to theorize and maybe even engage the audience in a dialogue about, well, this is why we think it happened. What do you guys think? You know, that's what's going to start creating some real wheels turning and some really great conversation during that meeting. Then the next thing you can do as a presenter 
is start to show even additional value and say, well, what should we do about it? If we had our way, these are the steps that we would take in order to take action on this particular item. And my great friend, Evan Lapointe, actually gave me this advice on my podcast where he said, always leave at least two recommendations for people. Because if you give one and they don't agree with it, that's going to create friction and might alienate them a bit. But giving them two options that you can discuss empowers them with the idea that they're in the driver's seat with you in making a choice. Yeah, that's a that's a really important point. I just want to underscore that because we use that philosophy in quite a few locations. Um, oftentimes when we produce contracts, we give people a choice. Mm-hmm. And it's striking how often that, that strategy is used. Uh, I think almost any anything you would buy has, well, not anything you'll buy, I guess you can't say it in the general retail world, but oftentimes if you're going to buy um, a MarTech tool, for example, you have the low, medium, mm-hmm. high option. They're giving you that choice, not just to empower you, but also to nudge you to the middle option. So mm-hmm. if I could build onto Evan's recommendation, I would actually say, give three recommendations and put the one that you really mm-hmm. want to pick in the middle. Okay. Oh, This is getting, I love building on uh, (laughs) strategies that I already use. That's really fantastic. Um, And of course, I don't think there's anything wrong with structuring what you deliver in a way that aligns with your best outcome, right? But also, you know, in terms of thinking about what's going to meet everyone's needs. I think that's great. So that was the first three steps. I think you mentioned there were five. So um, after you Mm -hmm. show additional value, then what? So this for me is one of (laughs) so crucial. They're all crucial, but this one in particular. And it's saying once you've delivered those recommendations and everyone's kind of moving towards agreeing to stuff, I don't want you to walk out of that room without identifying who should do it and by when. So creating accountability around recommendations, I find after working with hundreds of practitioners is that we often, even if we get to the point of giving recommendations, we'll go, and that's Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. All right, Mm -hmm. bye. And for me, when I ask my students, guys, if we don't assign the recommendation to someone who is going to take responsibility and everyone shakes their head, no one. And it's the same thing. If we give recommendations like continuing to monitor or making this change and there's no reasonable deadline when's it going to get done (laughs) sold so that people don't maybe at least with the manager or with someone who has a feeling for oh this person would be good to solve this problem so that people just don't sit there and go oh not me not me it's going to be the person who's not at the meeting who didn't see any of the presentation Uh, Yeah, I think that's a great idea, actually. I always recommend collaborating with a manager that or some senior level who's going to be present at that meeting or is sponsoring you for this meeting. Uh, This is something we talked about on uh, your appearance on my show is having that sponsor or advocate for you present at the meeting. And I think working with them in advance to say like, well, what are the best chances? Who, who's going to be the best person to take this on? Um, because yeah, we don't want to just look around the room and be like, who's got this one, guys? It's my experience that depending on the kind of recommendation, there's a natural 
group or person who would naturally be accountable for it. Um, and it would make sense. And of course, if there's a, an overriding person in the hierarchy there, they can make that final call. But at least having the conversation rather than just delivering the recommendations and then leaving it there, I think is a crucial step in making these meetings really worth everyone's while. I think that's an, a really good point to underscore, and it's one that's often missed. Yes, not anymore. <laughs> So there is one more, and I actually, I'm trying to remember where I learned this one, but I thought this was a really interesting, which is communicating or trying to articulate in tangible terms, what is the possible cost of not taking mm. action? If we did nothing, what's going to happen? Mm. <laughs> Is our campaign performance just going to plateau? Are we going to lose ground in performance this way? Are our customers going to keep abandoning our lead generation process at an increased rate? And this one's tougher just because, you know, it could require some projections and things like that. But if you're really good with your numbers, this is a really powerful tool because then they are, that's kind of lighting a fire under them to say, oh, guys, we can't let that happen. That's a worse trade-off than having enough time to and do nothing. Know, this is where the customer <laughs> angle can come in and be very powerful because if you think about it in terms of frustrating your high-value customers and you know watching them walk away, even if you could put it into that context, you would end up with um, either A, customer voice, or B, you could see the actual use cases and the activity of the customers mm -hmm. changing over time. That would be a very solid way to say not only is there a cost in terms of the channel, you know, the actions that we normally see on the channel, like click-throughs or engagements, but there's a long-term cost in terms of the amount of revenue we build for the business when we uh, when we isolate when we frustrate people who have high statistical propensity to buy from us again which are our high value mm -hmm. customers yes exactly that's exactly what i was thinking was that the data that you help companies work with is really catered well to identifying that kind mm -hmm. of risk. And there's very few of them. You know, we almost always see that break out into a, a rough 80-20 split, and it's usually less than 20%. Mm. So if you're ad identifying your high-value customers, who are oftentimes your very frequent engagers, those folks mm -hmm. who are frustrated, you know, even in a, a channel perspective, can also be the ones that are not just the first to walk away, but they're that 17% or, you know, or less. There's a small number of them mm -hmm. and they're hard to get back. <laughs> oh, yes. That's also a really good point is I think the power and the kinds of data that you're working with, you are also understanding the loyalty factors and the expense of resources and trying to maintain even really high value customers. So I think that's an amazing good, lens. Good. Well, since we're talking about value, let's let's go right into that. Um, is there a tangible impact that you've seen from people or companies who tend to get it right in this kind of communication strategy? Are they seeing an impact of some sort? 
I think so. And I think where I've seen the companies really win the most is especially when they have the voice of customer at their disposal. Um, I haven't worked extensively with companies that actually calculate and work with customer lifetime value models. I have a pretty extensive background in content marketing. But in terms of companies that are getting it right with communicating their insights and then making those insights really work for them. There's a couple of things that I'm seeing. So the people who are getting communication right internally, they're really winning with their stakeholders. They're thinking about what it is their stakeholders actually need. You know, they're asking probing questions. They're having dialogues with them. They're saying questions like, what is at the top of your plate right now? Or what would a successful Q3 look Mm. like to you? Questions that get more to the emotional heart of what is behind the stakeholder's actions that is beyond just the stakeholder saying, well, give me everything that you've got. (laughs) Because we often get that. And I think when we hear that question, part of that question is rooted in them not really understanding how their needs overlaps with what we are able to provide Mm -hmm. as analysts. So the more we bridge that gap as practitioners, the more we're going to win. And that is going to start demonstrating the value of our work to them. And for me, the real end game is creating mutually fulfilling relationships between the practitioner presenter and their own organizations and clients. And when that cycle starts to really happen, they're going to see less customer churn. They're going to see higher customer satisfaction and more loyalty because they're really understanding the value of their investment that they're making in analytics. And they're really acting upon it in a way that is more immediately measurable. I have found that when stakeholders and companies are more engaged in that process through the exchange of data and, and stories, the faster they are going to act on it. They're galvanized into action. And in terms of agencies, they're having happier clients, uh, less employee churn. I don't think people realize, but I know so well the sort of dissatisfaction that can brew when I feel like I'm not making Mm. a difference and I'm not in a functional relationship with my stakeholders. It's almost like a dysfunctional marriage. Mm. A lot of the same dynamics can present in business and in you know professional relationships and you know this really ensures that both parties understand the value that each side is bringing to the table and they're acting like partners rather than a service or a vendor to a client. I think that's incredibly important and it and it really goes well beyond the agency side. I I have heard uh, particularly in the chief data officer summits that I tend to go to to pick up you know the latest and greatest ideas the ones that are winning are oftentimes the ones that have developed a system for reaching out and really deeply understanding what different parts of the organization need, i.e. the stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And as part of that, they oftentimes embed an analyst to bring the crossover so that you have the subject matter Mm -hmm. expertise crossing over with the analyst. And it's not just the subject matter expertise, it's also what levers can these people pull, which restricts Mm -hmm. what kind of actions they can take. We've all been there where you recommend 
recommend something and they're like, well, that's nice, but I can't do anything about that, even though it should be in my <laughs> Right. <not. laughs> right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I've seen that a lot uh, with the client positioning an analyst role to act as a sort of bridge between the houses. I think that can go really well if a well-crafted choice for that role happens. Mm -hmm. Now, with all your experience, I imagine you have put together a methodology to put this impact and the philosophy for good data communication together. Uh, Can you share with us a little bit about the methodology that you use? Well, I'm just so happy you asked about that, (laughs) Alison. So yes, you're right. Um, One of the things that I found when I was devouring every book I could and following every expert, I found that I was having trouble approaching a business question that I was being asked to visualize and ending up at the end with something that was concrete, trustworthy, and actionable. So I worked really hard to distill everything I've pulled uh, from from different experts and all of my experience into something I call the PICA protocol. So the idea behind it is that we tend to present these unhealthy visualizations that don't serve anybody. And the PICA protocol is a very prescriptive approach that is practical, it's repeatable, it's not abstract or pie in the sky, and it's a tool set that you can use consistently every time to deliver visualizations and data stories that really answer questions and and meet the four goals that I talked about in the beginning. If you'd like, I'd love to go through the four steps. I'm on the edge of my seat. Go ahead. (laughs) Excellent. So it starts with P, which is purpose. And what I've found is very often we'll kind of dive right into data and we'll just start developing charts as soon as we possibly can. We'll put it in a PowerPoint and we'll throw it up there. And what I want us to do is take a step back and start to really ask some philosophical questions to the the overarching question, you know, why do you exist? What decisions are you going to inform? How are you going to make my stakeholders' life better? That's one of my favorite questions, mm-hmm. you know? So determining that you can actually start to verbalize out loud or you can brainstorm on a piece of paper, you know, I want to show Uh, My stakeholder is interested in seeing how something changes over time based on what we've done in the last quarter with this campaign. You know, you can start to verbalize these things and then you start to look for keywords, which we know something about Mm -hmm. in this field, but you start to look for keywords in that brainstorm and certain keywords will help um, ideas for which chart type to choose. So things like over how something changes over time, or this changes when that changes, or comparing this group of things to how it did last year. So these kinds of keywords can literally point you to a side-by-side bar chart, a scatter plot, a line graph, year-over-year line graph. But that way, at least you have some signposts to guide you to an appropriate chart because That's one of the most crucial pieces of success 
at the you know, outset. I, I actually was surprised when you said to look for keywords, I thought you were going to say to create resonance with the stakeholder. And you went to to create to the, the chart type, which is a really good application of that. And as we're listening to these stakeholders, uh, so that was a bit of a surprise for me. Do you also find sometimes <laughs> that by listening more accurately, you're also create you're setting yourself up to create resonance? I couldn't agree with you more. One of the greatest areas of growth for myself is listening to learn rather than just listening to respond. I find that this is very prevalent communication breakdown, myself included, where very often when a stakeholder is talking, our minds will start getting distracted or wandering and or if they're starting to say something that we're not in agreement with, we're already crafting a rebuttal mm -hmm. <laughs> and we're giving that rather than really listening to them to learn about what they're saying. So I totally agree with you. The better listening skills we develop to hear how it is, how do they call things? What are, what's the vernacular that's familiar to them that's going to make this really clear to them? And using that in the vocabulary of your insights, I think, is an amazing strategy. Good. I'll write that one down. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one is purpose. What's the second element of the mm -hmm. pro protocol? So the second is a real doozy, and that's the word insight. So this is a word that we throw around so much in our field. And one day I thought to myself, what does that actually mean? What do we mean when we're saying this? And I learned that the definition of insight is something that gives us the capacity to understand something in an intuitive and accurate way. And I thought, wow, that's not what I would call what I'm doing <laughs> for the most part. So I've spent years figuring out all different ways to get more to that piece. Because what I think, you know, Avinash Kashik said this during a thought leader conversation a few years ago. He said, analysts need to be able to distinguish between data and insights. And I thought that that was really powerful. So the first tool that I teach for getting closer to those insights is actually those five steps that I took you through earlier. You know, you know what happened and why do we think it happened? Those are the baseline mm -hmm. of our insights, right? And making, crafting it in a way that, you know, can you build tension? Is there a beginning part of this story that says something like, you know, we're starting to see feedback from customers that they're having problems with this particular area. And then, oh, man, we we go to the bird's eye view and we see this is potentially happening to this percent of our website or, you know, customer population. Those kinds of things like starting smaller and then getting bigger and bigger, those create a lot of anticipation and engagement and they're insightful. Other ways for creating insight is making sure that you're leveraging other visual cues to give really a, a sense of how close you are to performing to people's expectations. So anytime you have targets or benchmarks or year over year, anything that can really allow you to understand your performance against expectations will also provide insight. 
And then the last piece of insight that I really like is if you're working with dashboards in particular, how you lay out the modules of a dashboard are critical in helping people walk through a story on their own because it's self-serve, ideally. So if you are looking at four different channels for something and the same types of metrics, create consistency between how each of those channels is presented. So you're creating a, a language that people get familiar with and follow, and those insights will bubble up so much mm, faster. I love it. I love it. Uh, especially when we, we often say, uh, reports are not analysis, but yet they're often asked <laughs> to be analysis. So that story yes. that comes through the dashboard is really leading someone down the path to asking the right analysis questions if you do it right. I think you're spot on. I know that uh, Tim Wilson's great friend and analytics extraordinaire you know, he really taught me that the most well-crafted dashboard shouldn't require a walkthrough to understand what's happening. Um, it should prompt the questions for deeper analysis. But if someone needs a walkthrough of it every week, something may not be right with the dashboard mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And it's not just that, um, I often say this too, if you don't understand the data. And, and so sometimes people come to us and they say, oh, we want training, we want to understand data better. And it's not that they haven't been taught to look at data. There, I guess there is some element of that, but it's really more about the way the data has been cut or what's presented mm -hmm. in a given data set that they don't know to ask for. So they look at a dashboard or they look at a, a graph or a chart and they don't understand it and they think the problem is them, but the problem isn't them at all. <laughs> Such a good point. Such so, a good point. So insight, so we've got purpose and insight. What does the C stand for? Mm -hmm. The C is really critical to making sure you're telling the whole story. So C stands for context. And it's my request to everyone who analyzes data that when you think that you have arrived at a final conclusion and you think you know what's going on, probe further, ask yourself, do I have all of the information at my disposal to tell a complete story? And context can, uh, ways of incorporating context are saying, what was performance this time last year or last quarter? Uh, what are different segments of our data that we can look at demographically, geographically, platform, technology, things like that? Is there a deeper story there? So those different ways, if you start to drill a bit deeper, you might actually find even a juicier story that complements your initial finding or contradicts your initial finding. I've found that to be a really interesting storytelling trick where I'll start off saying, well, when we looked on the surface, this is what we found, which is what we expected. But wait, guys, when we dug deeper, we actually found this happening over here, which really blew our minds. So these are just <laughs> ways that you can just get people so much more engaged rather than just rattling off disjointed numbers. I, I think there's an interesting element for the analysts too in the, in the production timeline. You oftentimes look at 
um, you know, requests come in and you have to respond to them within a certain time period. So, you know, maybe mm-hmm. it's a, a couple of days, maybe it's a couple of weeks and whatever that mm-hmm. time period is, we tend to push it to the very last minute. And it sounds like <laughs> in order to get the proper context, in order to have time to probe further, you really need to buffer that. Yes. And I would, I'm going to say it here. I one day dream of a world where so many presenters and practitioners have adopted these kinds of practices to push back on some of the crazy deadlines that we get and say, I need more time because I want to deliver something that's going to be really valuable to you. I believe that we've gotten into a sort of cycle where because who knows what the chicken and the egg was, but because we are starting so late procrastinating, myself included, we're putting together something that we think just about Mm -hmm. covers it. (laughs) It'll just do the job just so we can leave the room and get back to the real work, right? And we are feeding a cycle of you know, stakeholders saying, I need to see these numbers by tomorrow or Friday and it's Wednesday. And what they're used to getting is something really quickly, hastily put together. They're not seeing something. And I think that so many stakeholders just haven't seen what that can look like, that they don't know what's worth waiting mm-hmm, for yet. Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe the analysts haven't been trained enough to go deeper. And whether they give them two weeks or two months or two days, they basically get the same answer. Exactly. That's a great point. That's a great point. Of course, the analysts need to be equipped with the tools and the desire to probe deeper. And then once time is removed as a barrier, then it is really up to them to take that step. How much time, either in terms of hours or days or weeks, do you think is reasonable to add as the buffer? I think this is a great question. And the answer is, it depends. (laughs) So what I found was when I was starting to incorporate a lot of these principles, I was slow going. I had to sometimes ask for weeks if it was like a big quarterly review um, because I was trying to figure out my sort of groove, my storytelling groove. But once I found that and once I incorporated best practice, um, I'm actually going to give a clue to the final step, which is aesthetic principles. But once I started incorporating that and I started getting templates underway with a storytelling narrative that consistently worked, I found that I could get things out the door a lot faster because I had trained myself in an approach of what to look for, how to keep it really focused. So I wasn't really presenting more than three major top line insights and maybe some supporting points behind that. Because I found that the fewer insights I talked about, the more likely people were to act on them because we simply just cannot hold that much more information in our heads at once. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it becomes uh, too much noise. People can't figure out what to do with all that data. Exactly. It's called cognitive load. And it's one of the things I think preventing people from acting on information when we present because there are just too many things Mm -hmm, to think about. mm -hmm. That makes sense. Okay. So maybe start out by giving yourself um, at at least a week extra time and see where that takes you and then modify from there as you get used to the process. 
Yes. You know, really lobby for yourself. Work with your boss and say things like, you know, I really want to try something different. I really want to make this so valuable for the stakeholders, but it's going to require a little bit of elbow grease. So can you give me a little bit of extra time so I can really show you what I'm capable of? You know, people want to see their teams producing higher quality information, you know, and I think that they're willing to wait if it's lobbied for Mm -hmm. the right way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one more thing on this when I think sometimes when you pre-deliver the first level of insights, you end up pulling on um, subject matter experts and creating that stronger relationship with stakeholders, with other groups that start to give you more direction about where else to look or whether your insight actually has legs. You know, maybe your fabulous insight mm-hmm. is the result of a bot that somebody filtered out at one point and... <laughs> I know. Those are the worst. (laughs) Good. Okay. So you mentioned the last point is aesthetic. What does that involve? Yes. So aesthetics is the visual component of anything. And when I talk about aesthetics in this context, I'm not talking about making things pretty or flashy or snazzy. And I've heard all of those words being used to describe what people are looking for to prevent boredom. But what I mean is using brain-centered visual principles, things like gestalt principles and alignment and white space to create breathing room for our brains so that what we're trying to communicate comes across crystal clear. And the key to this is that we're not making our audience do any visual work on their own to understand what it is we're trying to say. As soon as we are making them do unnecessary work, we lose their attention. That makes sense. So aesthetics includes, you know, things that I mentioned, like alignment and white space. And when it comes to charts, a lot of it is removing the extraneous noise that our tools add by default. So extra grid lines and axis lines and fonts that are too small and diagonal labels. These are all things that interfere with how our brains understand information. And then the final piece that is crucial is how we use Mm -hmm. color. We're very often using color in an arbitrary fashion um, to just color different categories and such. But we stop to appreciate that red and green especially have a certain meaning, but we often use those in a somewhat arbitrary way. So my favorite tool for that is I like to color all of my data like a baseline gray to create a backdrop. And then when I point out my key insight, I'm using some sort of standout color like a blue uh, for emphasis or a deep red for something that needs attention and saying, but look at this particular point. And that is a visual tool for telling your specific story. It's so much easier to digest than a colorful chart with a big red line around one area. Like a big PowerPoint circle. Yeah, exactly. And an arrow and a bunch of (laughs) arrows alongside it. This is where you should focus. (laughs) Yeah, I, I agree on color. Yeah, we are visual creatures first, and we are designed to pick out color as a distinguishing characteristic. So really use it mindfully as a tool, intentionally, not just as something that happened to you your 
I went over to a friend's house who was a designer and we're walking around in her living room and I'm thinking, gosh, it feels so comfortable. It feels so good. And then I looked closely at her bookshelf and what she had done is put all books of the same color, all like she had color grouped things and you wouldn't notice it immediately, but your brain was automatically (laughs) responding to it. Yes. And also that's using a principle of, uh, I'm forgetting what it is, but when things are grouped together, um, like contiguity, it might be, that is something that we're also very attuned to. Absolutely. Okay. So so if people want to understand more about the PICA principle, um, oftentimes folks who are on my show have, um, you know, like a document or some way for them to get more information, which we include in the podcast, uh, in the notes uh, section that appears on our site. Is there something along these lines that we can include for you? Absolutely. So I just produced a 22-page deep dive into the entire PICA protocol. It's called The Prescription, and all of your listeners would be able to grab it at leahpicafica.com slash ambition data, or you can text the word, one word, ambition data, to 44222, and you'll get a free copy in your inbox, and you'll also be signed up to get all of my best resources. Oh, that's fantastic. I love the text element. So if you're uh, hopefully not driving, but you're listening to this remotely. You can just text four four two two two. So you text to that number and you send the word ambition data. Exactly. Yes. Excellent. Okay. Um, so usually at this point we go into some of the next steps of uh, what should I do first, second, and third. Can you give us a a quick summary? You've given us so many takeaways, but um, is there a particular action someone should take first? <laughs> Yes, the first thing, well, first half thing is definitely download the protocol. (laughs) It's going to change your whole life, uh, or at least your work. But um, I'd love to actually give a few communication tidbits that are based in nonviolent communication by Marshall Rosenberg. These have been amazing in how I interact and relate to my uh, stakeholders. The first piece I would give is to stop what you're thinking when you think you know what someone's saying and curious. And before making any assumptions about what someone wants or what they're arguing, stop and ask some questions. Have a a curiosity mindset. That is going to serve you so well. And the next really powerful tool is acknowledgement. I often observe that a practitioner might be presenting their hard work or the stakeholders asking a question and start critiquing things. But if we stop to actually acknowledge each other first, wow, this is an amazing start, or wow, that's a really insightful question, tell me more. You can't imagine the difference it's going to make in the good <laughs> the good vibes that get tossed mm-hmm. around and how work becomes more productive because of that. And then the third tool I really recommend is adopting a service mindset. And we referenced this a little bit in the beginning. When you convince yourself that your role is to serve your clients, your bosses, your audience, you start to begin to work from a needs-based perspective. You think about how you're going to make their lives better. And that transmutes from just grudgingly meeting their demands 
that is going to not only improve their satisfaction, but it's going to improve your job satisfaction and fulfillment. So these are some of the greatest tools I have in my belt. We oftentimes talk about that with the customer mindset. How do you be of service to your customers? But it really does apply in almost every Mm. audience, every Mm. direction. It probably makes the world a better place in the in, in process as well. Absolutely. And I have to get these out there because I really don't care how beautiful your charts are. If there's something fundamentally imbalanced about your relationship with your stakeholders, they're not going to matter you know, much. We often say that too. Um, if somebody doesn't like you, they don't really listen to you. And it doesn't matter like how good your charts are. <laughs> yes. It is so true. It's very true. Leah, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they reach you? So I'm on LinkedIn. Feel free to send me a connection request and a message. I check it very frequently. I'm also at Twitter. I'm at Leapika. And I'd love for you to check out my blog, leapika.com. It has my podcast, lots of great articles. and yeah, so lots of ways to and, get to And me. some good mm-hmm. dashboard remodels too that I've seen that are a lot of fun to watch. So that's been a really interesting new service and working with companies, um, calling it a dashboard triage, where I'm finding that companies are due to create dashboards in a short period of time and they're striking out with their initial passes. And I'm able to come in and and sort of in the clutch and empower them with better visualizations and better realignment and storytelling. And that's helping serve them really get the basically get the ball into Mm -hmm. the goal, essentially. And it's been really fascinating. I I can't wait to talk more to the dashboard work I'm doing this year. Well, yeah. as always, links to everything we discussed today and particularly Leah's fabulous guide and other resources will be available at ambitiondata.com podcast. Leah, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it was really my pleasure. Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you for having me. Remember, everyone, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It is not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is Allison. Just a few things before you head out. Every Friday, I put together a short bulleted list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. I actually call this email the signal. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are doing amazing work building customer equity. If you'd like to receive this nugget of goodness each week, you can sign up at ambitiondata.com and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoy the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.